Kia ora. What's up everyone? My name's Noah Woolof and I'm the host of the Beyond the Surface podcast, a platform to dive deep into the minds of incredible Kiwis who have a story worth sharing. For today's episode, I'm joined by Brad Olson. At 24, Brad is one of New Zealand's leading economic commentators, has met the Queen and is a frequent in the media. We all know that New Zealand and the younger generation are facing an avalanche of challenges ahead of them. With the average house price now tipping over $1 million, ridiculous rents and a high cost of living, it's hard for anyone to really get ahead. Brad cuts the fluff when talking about these complex issues, breaks them down in ways in which the ordinary Kiwi can understand without the economic jargon. Don't let talk about the economy scare you. It's important and it connects us all. It was a pleasure to have Brad on the podcast, a friend who's tipped for greatness. Welcome to episode number four. Hey, Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Definitely our best dressed guest so far. <laughs> so thanks for coming in with the suit. That, I feel like this is the normal sort of get up and I'd feel uncomfortable. Well, you'd probably feel uncomfortable if you saw me in t-shirt and shorts. <laughs> do, you, do you find like most of your attire is now, you know, in sort of business attire at the moment? It, it does seem to be. And I, th- I mean, that was sort of a conscious choice. Like, trying to sort of break into uh, something like economics, uh, you sort of need to dress the part only so that people at the start take you seriously. Um, you know, you don't want to, well, I didn't want to be seen as sort of too, too junior and people didn't take me seriously. So you sort of get over that threshold, you sort of mix in the right area. And it seems to have worked. Um, you know, the tie collection's uh, probably larger than my, my short collection, that's for sure. Yeah, even moving into summer, um, I, I think it's always quite hard, you know, when you're first starting a new job and there's this requirement to be dressed in a really dapper suit or if there is that dress attire. I mean, when I first started my sort of corporate job it was like man where am I going to get the money to like you know dick myself out in the suit oh totally and they're super expensive and to be like they're not particularly comfortable like I sort of I try to take a bit more of a hybrid approach you know some chinos and that yeah um you know not always wearing a tie sort of depends on exactly the day but also people's sort of styles moderate over time and and I think it's important you know it's the self-reflection of of who they are um, I've, I'm generally wearing a blazer that doesn't mean anyone else needs to. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Brad, before we get into things, do you mind just introducing yourself? You know, for people who um, are tuning in today, they've probably recognised your voice already, or if they're watching, they've probably see you, seen you on breakfast. But um, if you can introduce yourself, who are you? Absolutely. Um, I'm Brad Olson. I'm a Principal Economist and Director at Infometrics. Um, also New Zealand's youngest JP, um, and I guess like to think of myself as being relatively community-minded. Um, from Whangarei originally, uh, moved down from that metropolis down to Wellington uh, for university and have stuck around ever since. And, and so I guess, you know, certainly my pathway over the last few years has been getting more into the commentator space, um, trying to make sure that things get put simply and that we're communicating important information so that people can make good decisions. Have you always had a strong interest in economics? I, I just want to understand where did that come from? Has, what was that aha moment for you at a young age? I think it probably started directly when I, um, I think it was year seven, start of uh, my, my, my year seven year, I got one of those tiny little notebooks and every night for the first two weeks of the year I wrote down the stock uh, market prices from the TV. Um, then I lost, you know, lost lost it uh, I think about three weeks in, you know, didn't didn't record one night, sort of lost the track. Uh, but I was always interested in trying to understand what's motivating people and I guess that's probably the bigger consideration for me is 
what, what what's what's making people's choices? What are the, how are they deciding on what they're doing? Um, and that was always something I did from a very young age. I was interested in uh, the community and what was happening out there, what was shaping people's decisions. Eventually, I sort of looked at economics and saw that as a lens. You know, what we're looking at trying to allocate resources, why people do the things they do, what they do with the resources. Generally, money, but not always their time as well. Uh, how do they utilise that? What are they trying to get out of life? Mm, that's, that's a really good point. I think it's not until you probably get a bit older in your life, you really understand how connected everything is around economics. You know, supply and demand, but you know, inflation, money, uh, trade, it affects every part of our daily life. Absolutely. And I think like for somewhere like New Zealand, because we're already such a small, uh, you know, group of people and, you know, we've got those networks, that becomes even more important because trying to get things done is just as much about who you know as about what you know and what you have. And and that's something in economics, you know, I think a lot of people look at economics and think, ah, yes, money, uh, or, or, or think too much about the stock market. I mean, for something like New Zealand as well, our stock market's not that big. We have a huge housing market, of course, but for a lot of people, they're way more interested in their daily lives about what, where's the money coming from and what are they going to spend it on. Mm. Talk to me about your journey from obviously that first interest and the first aha moment getting engaged into economics and I'm guessing you were the sort of student that you know very academically driven and picked you know economics probably business studies how did the educational system help um, support you I guess on your journey into the work you're in today I was a nerd like straight up I was a nerd no, I, I, <laughs> I love that own I, it I, I, I wear that sort of as a badge of honor like you I went through very much focused again on trying just trying to understand things I'm a relatively practical thinker if you give me too much theory I'm gonna zone out I'm not going to do very well but but practical things where I could understand how you move from step A to B to C was important. Um, interestingly though, it wasn't sort of that I became sort of just a, a financial geek, if you will, uh, during high school. I mean, my last year I was still doing, I think, two science papers, chemistry, physics. What do they have to do with economics? Nothing. But they were practical. They sort of helped my way of thinking, again, trying to connect all the dots uh, in life so that, you know, when one thing happens, what's the next thing that's going to happen after that? Um, all of that was quite important. I mean, my school career, um, obviously, Whangarei Boys High, uh, to start with up north, um, went through that. That was fantastic. But I think what was good as well was that I had the opportunity, and in fact, I looked for the opportunity to get outside of the classroom as well. You know, I was going um, to youth council meetings um, and, and with Whangarei District Council. I was getting out with the National Youth Advisory Group. I was sort of looking for uh, trying to have that focus within school and, and the pure education, but also a bit of sort of real world practical uh, life experience because I understood that, you know, there was more to life than the four walls of the classroom. Yes, no, that's a that's a really good point. And you're probably one of the, you know, select people who's also met the Queen. Do you know, speak about that and how that came about? That one was very much, uh, a fluke's probably putting it a bit too lightly, but it was it was quite an unusual pathway again. And I remember quite clearly uh, the Queen Jing Leaders Awards were set up. Uh, so for four years they picked 60 uh, young leaders from across the Commonwealth. New Zealand generally got one, maybe two a year. Um, they, was, they went over to the UK and received a medal from the Queen and similar. Um, I put in an application and more because I thought that it was important that New Zealand had some representation. Um, I, I, I didn't put it into one and I sort of make that quite clear, which is, Hugely ironic, right, given that I did. Uh, but the, the focus there was trying to showcase the work that New Zealanders were doing because we are, again, a small part of the world in, in a sense, but we I do think we punch above our weight. So I put in the application, 
few months later, I remember it was probably about seven o'clock in the morning. I think it was a Sunday morning. It was it was a weekend. I wasn't feeling particularly sort of uh, smart uh, that morning, and I got this call from the UK, and they sort of said, "Oh, well, you've been selected, and um, we'll be in touch with some more details." So that was a pretty whirlwind, uh, whirlwind trip. What sort of got me though was going over there. Um, I know this is cliche, but the best part of that trip was actually meeting the other young leaders because there was such passion in the room, but also such different focuses. You had people that were doing uh, incredible work in the sort of queer community space, you had stuff around education, HIV AIDS um, in Africa, you know, it, it really did bridge all the different divides and it showed me as well, and, and this is probably the, the biggest point for me, it wasn't just a recognition of service, it was very much a, okay, you've done some stuff but now we want you to go on and do more and so that recognition mm. of sort of, um, you know, you've got a further path to go, uh, I think did inspire me to try and do even better as I sort of move forward. Mm. Did you have any chance to actually speak to the Queen? That's because, that, you know, just thinking that must just be such a surreal experience, you know, meeting royalty. And I'm, I'm not a royalist by any means, but the Queen is somebody who is pretty special. What was the sort of process leading up to the moment you shook her hand? It was very intense. So, I mean, we were there at that for my Queen Chang Leaders Award. We were there the um, day that the Brexit vote happened. We'd been uh, in number 10 Downing Street earlier that week. Uh, you know, Joe Cox, uh, MP, had been shot and killed um, earlier on, stabbed and killed I think earlier on so it was, uh, the entire process was very tense, security was tight um, uh, everyone sort of very much respected the the, the office uh, and so you know security was was huge we were all very much on edge you know a bunch of people anywhere from 18 to about 30 everyone was very much on tenderhooks uh, but we got given sort of about 30 seconds now I'm not going to lie I wish I had a better story I interrupted her um, <laughs> classic Kiwi you know had some stuff to say only had 30 seconds wanted to get my bit out uh, sort of interrupted her we had a little bit of a sort of back and forth but we had a, a chat and, and that chat was very much in the short space of time that we had was around sort of recognising young people because I, I think the, the challenge that we've got is that the issues that the world is dealing with at the moment are not only greater uh, in number than we've ever seen before, but far faster moving. And that means that the people who are being coming through the ranks that are taking on those challenges, young people today, are having to get on top of a lot more a lot quicker. Mm. Um, and, and so that was just a really clear moment there where she was uh, very, very uh, focused and clear that this award was trying to uh, not only inspire but drive more leadership amongst young people. Um, so it was hugely powerful. That's beautiful. And yeah, you're right. You know, young people have got a pretty a pretty big task ahead of them with some of the challenges which which face them. And and we'll head into that a bit later into the episode. But really keen to you know also understand how did you get into the position where you are in today, being you know one of New Zealand's leading economic commentators. Was that a natural sort of progression for you or how did that first I guess moment start where you were you know talking to breakfast talking to John Campbell and stuff daily because I, I chuck on Newstalk ZB or the radio you're one of the you're one of the people that that pops up I'm like oh my god it's Brad again you're everywhere it, it was the sort of thing I think if you like went back five years I wouldn't have sort of looked at myself in five years time and gone that's where I'm going to be so it wasn't a sort of as deliberate there um, I mean you well know I like talking um, and and that's always been I guess a skill of mine some would call it a curse um, but I've always been quite keen to try and understand what things are, are happening how they are happening why um, and where to next and in fact I think my parents have said that my favorite word growing up was 
why. It was sort of, you know, let's go further, let's dig into this. With work then, when I was sort of moving into the economics um, area, it was again trying to highlight these changes to people. We've got a lot of businesses, a lot of households, a lot of leaders across the country. Uh, if they don't have good information, they're going to be making some ill-informed calls. And so my thinking was, well, if we can get this information out there and it, it is understandable, it can start to shape those sort of better uh, decisions. I think that's where that came from and, and uh, talking to people, uh, talking to journalists and similar, you know, you sort of ask, well, why do you get the call back? Because there's a lot of people in New Zealand that can talk about this stuff. And what I heard quite clearly, um, and, and I, I think of this as just sort of, you know, my way of talking, not anything deliberate that I've done. One, I pick up the phone, which is always important, you know, contactability is, is critical. But also I'm very focused on, is this understandable to a general audience? Uh, you know, I feel like economists sometimes are like lawyers, trying to use far too many big words to yes. make ourselves sound smart. It doesn't help anyone. You know, if, if I use 20 billion syllables and no one can understand it, again, no one's as well informed, no one has that power, uh, that information to make a difference and make a, a change going forward. So the focus was always, how do I make understandable, useful information that people can uh, pick up, take back to their own lives, apply in their own area um, and do something with. Mm. And, and that's always been the sort of overriding focus. Mm. And you can you can see that in your delivery. You know, the way that you communicate is so digestible. And I think, you know, p people say, if you're speaking to the media, you, wanna, you want to communicate as in a way in which a five-year-old could also understand. Um, what is your sort of process around communication? Do you have a sort of strategy which you follow to get those clear messages across? Sort of nothing deliberate, and, and, and I think uh, the focus has always been trying to think about the audience, and I'm, I don't necessarily think about five-year-olds, but I often think about, look, if I was having a conversation uh, with someone on the street, I need to get that message across relatively quickly. They're not going to stand there for 10 years, as I explain, every little bits and, uh, bit and piece of it. They need to get sort of the key message straight away, but also in, in, in sort of a digestible format. So it's got to be something that relates to their daily lives. I remember one of the funnest or, or oddest uh, examples, I was doing a radio interview View and someone said, look, I just don't understand inflation. Explain it to me. Um, you know, and I used a, a very quick analogy about going to buy a pie and a Coke from the from the corner store, you know, the dairy. That's something that Kiwis sort of have done. They, they understand that much more than, you know, you trying to talk about mm. purchasing power or anything else. So uh, my big one is, is often examples, um, but also trying to steer clear of, of, of the uh, the bigger words. The biggest one though is I feel like you sort of just need to answer the question. I know how simple but stupid that sounds, but not trying to come up with a highfalutin way to answer. Yes. It's just just straight up. What is the immediate reaction? Because that often is, is sometimes the best commentary you can get. Yeah. And you're so right. You know, lawyers, central government, uh, economists, they do talk in really inaccessible language which is hard for the ordinary folk to understand you know they throw acronyms in there or different sort of abbreviations and stuff as well have you found that almost communicating and i think it's cutting the fluff out of the way that you communicate have you found that to be an effective way to get economics out to the ordinary person yeah i have and i think it i mean my big one has always been on examples as well so it's trying to cut the fluff but also uh make it relatable and, and so again you've got to sort of look at your audience right if, if i'm in a rural part or a provincial part of new zealand and i'm talking about apartment blocks well i'm doing my job wrong they're, they're not living in that sort of area mm. uh but similarly you know if i'm talking in the middle of a big flash presentation hall in one of our major urban centres and I talk about mud on the gumboots, well again, you know, the, the understanding might not be getting across. So you do have to very much pick your audience, um, but I think as well trying to focus, my overriding one there has always been, well, is this useful and understandable? If not, 
I should shut up, mm. you know, because you, you can spend a lot of time waffling um, that doesn't add anything. And I've, you know, I think of it when I did, uh, you, you know, courses at university, you know, you're writing a so many thousand word essay. Um, you've, you're trying to reach the target. Whereas if you can make the message simple enough and fewer words, I think that's way more effective. Mm. I'm really interested into the conversation around how we can almost get across um, economic terms or just the importance of economics to uh, to the general public, you know. I think it should probably be taught a bit earlier in schools, not necessarily when you reach uh, high school. Why is economics so important to everyday New Zealanders? I mean, it shapes literally everything that we do. It shapes what incentives are out there in the world. Um, it shapes the decisions that we make with our money, but also probably more importantly, our time and, and our other resources. Um, and it highlights what we're going to be doing for a fair amount of our lives. You know, you look at a lot of people who are going to work every day, generally nine to five. They're trying to earn money to go and live live a life in the weekend, put money in the boat, uh, fuel in the boat sort of thing, go and um, do some fishing or what have you. All of that is about economic decisions. They've got to sort of make the decision to go to work. They've got to figure out where the best place to fuel up is. They've got to figure out if they want to go fishing that day or jet skiing or, or, or whatever it might be. So I think my focus, uh, the, the challenge though that we have is all of this um, is often made far too difficult, but also couched I think in the wrong terms. You know, we think about economics and again, I, I can't tell you how many messages I get from people saying what, you know, business should I buy into or what's what's the best stock market price at the moment sort of thing. That's not a, any of my job at all. I couldn't tell you the last time I really looked at the NZX50 or something like that. It's not the, the key focus. It's much more what are people doing on the ground? Where are they moving? What are their hopes and aspirations? What are they doing to get there? And I think uh, particularly with that, we've also just got to be a bit more open with what um, what happens in the world. You know, I don't know about you, but at school I never learned much about the banking system or anything. No. I had no idea what a credit card looked like. I'd still have no idea about savings and similar if, if mum and dad hadn't looked after yes. me there. Um, so I think we don't talk enough about those those sort of things and the common refrain right when we get to you know the sort of early 20s you come out of university and you're talking about how well people are adulting um and you know it's well this person sort of got their their, their stuff together they, they know what they're doing they've got a house or they've got a partner or they're doing something smart with their money um i think for a lot of people everyone's far too afraid to talk about those things and without that feeling that they're confident in their finances but also not feeling like they have anyone to talk to they're just going to muddle along until either something turns right or something goes catastrophically wrong mm. In New Zealand as well, you know, and as a young person, and you could definitely relate to this too, the outlook when you look into the future is not looking too promising for us. Can you kind of speak on the current affair of economics in New Zealand, um, largely on the high cost of living? I know inflation has just gone up, you know, was it 4.9% and wages around 2.1% if I got that correct? Yep. Uh, and house prices are just absolutely through the through the roof. So you know, if you're not at least getting a five percent uh, pay rise, you're essentially losing money just to just to get by. Can you absolutely. speak on that? Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean we've also got to go back probably at least ten years. You know, you look at the global financial crisis. Young people uh, first out the door of the jobs there. Um, you know, took a decade or so to rebuild. COVID hit. We saw again young people. 
people very much first uh, cab off the rank when it came to uh, to businesses trying to sort of shed a few staff. Uh, at the same time, like, like you noted, housing market's gone absolutely crazy. Prices are up 30% per annum. Um, it's taking people at least a decade now to save a deposit. And I think that's the challenge, right? You, if you're a young person today, you're looking out there and it does seem like this sort of depressing wasteland of things piling up against you. And, you know, you talk about sort of one step forward, two steps back. It's sort of like one step forward, 20 steps back because of all of these challenges. You're paying a huge amount more on rent than you used to. Uh, you know, you, you, the costs um, of, of everything else, you know, going overseas, uh, fuel, food, um, everything else is starting to go up as well. Uh, the business, the, the job opportunities that you've got are a little bit more compromised because everyone is trying to, to do that work and you know you need 20 years experience um, at, at age 18. Yes. Um, so all of that I think is, is a real challenge and I guess what we're looking at uh, now is also people who are taking a much longer time to do a lot of things that, that sort of are seen as critical milestones in life. And that is actually going to be quite a big shift. We know that there are two major cha- or two major changes in my mind that's uh, coming forward for New Zealand. One is we talk about our ageing demographic. What that also means though is that we, our current crop of young people are going to have to support a much larger group of older people going into the future. That's going to limit our financial decisions. But with you know house prices where they are and everything else, again, that decade-long time, we're going to see, we're already seeing that young people are taking longer to get into relationships, they're taking longer mm. to pay off the student loan, they're taking longer to get into a house. So it means that you are shifting the entire time frame of someone's life probably out by nearly a decade. And that means that in that first decade of working, the sort of 20s to 30s, everyone is so much more vulnerable and so much more uncertain um, that's a huge risk, I think, for young people. We are seeing changes. We're seeing that young people are very much taking up the challenge and doing some awesome stuff with it. Um, but I do worry sometimes that we don't pay enough attention. We don't give enough of a damn about young people sort of coming up the ranks. Mm. And in New Zealand, how do we get to this point where the cost of living is so high, you know, housing prices are just through the roof? When did this happen? And was it an accumulation of poor policies over a long time? Because, you know, you look at other countries... Um, around the world and I'm sure some of their house prices aren't as bad as what we've got here in NZ. Absolutely and it is, it's exactly that, we've sort of let something build up over time, we've not only turned our head away from it but every time it comes up we try and bury it again, uh, you know very much forget about it, if it's not happening right now we'll sort of leave it to, to another day. That other day is starting to come home to roost and it means that you know today's generation, young people coming forward are going to have to deal with those issues. Climate change is a good example, we've known about that for decades um, but we're only really starting to make a real difference now mm. because it's starting to make an impact. Housing is sort of similar, um, but also, you know, you look at the foundations of our, literal foundations of our country, you know, the, the water pipes and, and all that, they're breaking around us. Well, that's what happens where for 40 years you don't put in enough money. Um, and, and what that is also, I think, meaning is that young people are going to be not only facing these current struggles, but also desperately trying to hold all the different threads together as parts of the country unwind, because we've sort of gone, there's no problem, there's no problem for so long that now all all of our problems are coming home to roost. And so it's not just one tsunami, if you will, it's all of the different tsunamis mm. combining in one. Um, now, that's a pretty grim outlook, right? And, and and I think we've got to be realistic that we will get through it simply because we have to. Um, but it does make some huge challenges. And I, the difficulty I think that we face is that we're not still not giving young people sort of the uh, opportunities to actually make a difference, but we are saying to them, well, it's going to be your problem, but not your time to solve it yet. Yes, such good points there, Brad. Um, what do you say to young people who, you know, or just anybody really who might be 
sort of struggling with that outlook and what do you say to them to keep them optimistic? I think that the knowledge that we sort of have found incredibly different ways to do things and, and something I take a lot of note of is again with the speed of change we're currently seeing in the economy across the entire world you know and the way that people interact we've also seen that young people are embracing that much more and we talk a lot about how um, businesses and, and uh, governments and similar need to keep up with the times or well, young people are keeping up with the times uh, we need to embrace that sort of thinking a lot more and it always got me particularly during COVID we talked a lot about how young people uh, weren't necessarily you know, uh, being taken seriously and were losing their jobs fastest. I thought that was a very short-term move from a number of businesses because if your business has to rapidly evolve, if you've got to all of a sudden turn to digital and online offerings, you want the sort of uh, mm-hmm. native, the, the digital uh, millennial sort of coming forward to help you out there. I mean, a quick story from me, I remember that I think it was the day that we went into lockdown last year, I asked the boss, I said, hey, can I um, you know, get a Zoom account so we can do webinars for clients? Um, and I'm pretty sure he turned to me and said, I, I didn't even understand half that sentence, but look, go for it. Um, you know, within in a few weeks we'd been talking to more more people across the country in, in one week or two weeks than we'd done in the entire last two years. So, you know, the pace of change is, is increasing and accelerating, but young people sort of are taking that up and that fills me with confidence because people are adapting. Um, is it a challenge? Absolutely. You know, we know that, say, mental health is a huge rising concern. Um, we know that people don't feel like they have the resources behind them. But I think we are also seeing um, a greater community spirit foster, particularly amongst younger groups, um, because they realise and, and they understand, right, you you know what your mate's going through, you know what yourself might be going through, you don't want other people to go through it in quite the same way. And so I think there's a much greater sharing of challenges, but also sharing of solutions going on. Mm. You know, youth em- youth employment is so important and ensuring that, you know, all of our rangatahi have jobs in their community. You know, we've got record low unemployment at the moment, uh, yet, you know, young people are still overrepresented. You know, histori- historically, NEET rates, that's young people non-education, employment or training, has kind of sat around that 13 or so percent. I think it's down to about 10 or 11 now. Still high, though. Still, still high when you think it's, you know, more than double our unemployment rate. What do you see some of the sort of key barriers that are limiting young people getting into work? I think some of them do sort of stem from education, um, both in terms of what we offer currently, but also how we make sure that it works for people. You know, I think far too often we have this uh, very clear pathway in life that you go through high school, you're a a straight A student, you go to university, you you get your degree, um, you eventually sort of turn up at a home with a um, wife and kids and a three picket fence sort of idea. It just doesn't work like that. I mean, again, I come from Whangarei, I think something like 70% of, of high school, people who are leaving high school are not not or don't want to be going into university. There's a huge focus on all of the other areas. And so I think we've got to, and we've been changing this right, but we've got to continue that focus on diversifying what pathways people are able to, to look for because university is certainly not the be-all and end-all. Um, and I think as well we've got to be looking more at, again, what, what's motivating people because telling someone to go and do a, a course um, you know, and, and telling them they've got to pay megabucks for it without the potential of a secure job, uh, not knowing what's coming next, that's a huge risk for a number of people. Mm. Uh, so I think we've got to do some work there. Again, trying to roll out more uh, on the job and, and sort of work-based learning um, is going to be critical. But also some of the 
the very physical barriers that we have around it. You know, um, we talk out now about how everyone you know is di- uh, digitally connected. That's true for a lot of people, but again, not everyone. We know that also a lot of young people are not getting driver's licenses yes. and similar. So you know, if you can't get somewhere, if you're in vulnerable housing, um, you don't have those connections. Well. A job is simply just not the top of your list. You can't do anything else. Mm. Um, so I think we've got to do some of those, get some of those sort of foundational settings right. We've got to give the right pathways. But I think some of that comes down to the right incentives as well. Um, and it's not so much sort of, you know, throwing the big stick and saying, well, if you don't do anything, then you're stuffed in life and there's no progress forward. It's saying there are other opportunities. How about you look at this pathway or another pathway? If the, But, you know, I, I think we need to get far less directional with what we try to push young people towards. Give the options, give the sort of open doors and let, and let them pick a lot more. I think that's something which uh, the educational sector has probably probably doesn't do the best which that they can, which is actually inspiring young people and you know harnessing their sort of creativity and innovation. Um, they always say, you know, if you follow your passion and you do a job which you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. Yet so many young people, when they're in the education uh, educational sector. It's so funneled towards mainstream, uh, further tertiary education and not so much, I guess, recognition around the trades. But trades are so important. What are you seeing at the moment around skill shortages in New Zealand? Oh, they're huge and and, in just about every sector, but also I think particularly in sectors that... um, don't necessarily have the best reputation. Now, that's not to say they're bad sectors, it's just they're not as well considered, you know, parts of the primary sector, construction and and, and similar. Um, Those areas have some huge issues at the moment. Um, And I think the difficulty, right, is that I don't know if we give young people the opportunity to actually develop that inspiration at school. I mean, I think of my woodworking class, for example. We took... 12 weeks to make a mallet. Now, if I was ever going to become a woodworker and my father's a builder, so there was potential, um, you know, that probably would never have inspired me. I wasn't using the tools I'd be using, um, you know, in, in the actual area. I also not doing the sort of what I would hope to be fulfilling work of building a house or building a hospital or creating a new road or a new bridge. You know, I feel like people want to see the tangible outcomes of what they do. You know, if you're on a farm or, you know, picking fruit or similar, you know that you're sort of contributing to some high quality New Zealand exports or making sure that people can feed their family. Um, All of those I think are are huge. So there's also that drive around what are people uh, wanting to do. There's certainly options coming forward. There's a lot of change I think appearing uh, with people trying to focus more on bringing forward young people and expanding those opportunities but we still have a way to go. Mm. With I guess the current state of things at the moment with you know we we're talking earlier the accumulation of potentially bad policies from previous governments which have led to uh this the sort of shit situation we're in now to put it bluntly um do you think anything with that is actually to do with the sort of election cycle and the way sort of parliament is sort of structured um i always think you know working in a three-year election cycle so much politics is involved in decision making which can actually I guess, stagnate sort of further uh, positive results because you're just looking for quick wins all the time. And if you want to actually influence or set in a policy, realistically, for that ambitious stuff, you might not actually see those results until, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later. 
Keen, keen to get your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of conversation about what we might need to be doing better with democracy, if you will, to actually allow it to work better. Um, look, changing the term, um, some of the arguments you put forward certainly make a lot of sense. Um, I know others will have other views. I think what gets me, though, and it sort of comes back to what I was talking about at the start, you know, the way that I communicate about economics is trying to be understandable and so that people can, can use it. And I wonder if politics sort of needs to move the same way. Again, yeah. you sort of look at politics, and I expect most people look at it and turn it you know turn it off a lot of them are seeing either question time coming forward you know and and, and all that looks like is just a bit of a you know people bullying each other or you know acting like well worse than school kids or you've got sort of this element where people feel like decisions are made some uh, quite a lot of the time for them without necessarily the right input or a lot of sort of highfalutin experts that, again, don't connect with people on the ground. So I think that's why you're seeing a, a greater disconnect there. Um, I mean, let's look at the vaccine rollout, say, for, for COVID-19. You know, we've heard a number of Māori authorities, a number of sort of more provincial authorities saying, gosh, if you'd just given us the chance, we could have connected directly to our community uh, and look what we're able to do now. And I think that sort of gets to how how do you create the right settings so that government, you know, big big government, yes. uh, is able to provide the right money and the right settings? But when you deliver solutions and deliver results, they are delivered at a local level. Um, that I, th- I think is going to be a much greater focus because at the end of the day, the issue I think a lot of people have with politics at the moment is they don't feel connected. They don't feel like they share uh, in the decision making or, or, or the processes. Um, so I think there has got to be a, a much greater focus there on actually what is this going to mean for people's daily lives? Um, you know, what is it going to mean for their back pockets? How can they influence it? Um, because too often I feel like people feel quite divorced from that process. Yeah, that's so true. And for many, well, everybody really, uh, and you see this a lot with central government stuff where they might be regionally focused, but nobody actually works regionally. Everybody works locally. And you don't want somebody, you know, developing up uh, policies or frameworks from the ivory towers in Wellington without actually having to step foot in some of the you know local and potentially rural communities which they're looking to service. Do you? And I know if your job, you're constantly travelling the country. Is 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 that a big part of, I guess, your role? And I guess what makes you quite successful is you do have that. Uh, um, you do have that experience going to these to, to these small towns. It's huge and, and important, I think, from from my point of view, to actually understand you know what things look like on the ground. Um, because you're right, the desktop exercise from the ivory tower of, of the Wellington office blocks just doesn't give you that appreciation for how how people are living, what things are coming forward, what the vibe is yep. on the ground. You know, I can show you all the numbers under the world, and I can still never tell you what the vibe might look like in somewhere like Dargaville uh, or down in Gore. Or across in Huntley, you know, it's just never going to be able to show showcase it. Um, and that has been a huge focus. This year I've sort of made it a, a personal goal to try and make it to all uh, 67 local council areas. I've got three to go um, at what the moment. What ones are they? Uh, I've got the Far North, uh, Hotafenua and Tasman, um, and I've got trips lined up for all of them, so hopefully we'll get there. But I think it's also part of that, right, is, is also meeting people where they are. You know, if, if I was to say to all, all of our clients and, you know, all the people we're talking about, well, no, you come here to Wellington. Well, again, I feel like it's way more inauthentic to do that. I, I sort of need to be able to to go there and say, look, I'm an expert on the data. Sure, you're an expert in your local community. What do I need to know? What's not going to come up? What are you seeing that we're not necessarily seeing? Because, again, a lot of this work that, that we're often trying to pull together um, is reporting after the fact. You know, real time is, is is just about nigh on impossible to actually get sort of figures out. But also to make decisions in real time is, is critically challenging. 
but that's also what local communities do all the time. They have to make those decisions, you know, when a disaster is threatening, who do they help out? How quickly do they sort of, um, you know, man the resources and, and, and battle stations? Um, I think for me that's been very important not only to understand what's happening in a local area, but actually make people feel like they are appreciated because they do have that local knowledge. Um, so it's far less, you know, me riding in on a, on some sort of, you know, horseback to save the day. It's actually saying, look, you're the expert. How can I support you to do better in the areas that you're working in? Yeah, that's brilliant. And from all of that travel, you know, you must you must have a pretty comfortable airpoint, uh, yeah, scheduling up. How's that looking? I feel like it's gone from the point right where a few years ago going to the airport was still very, very exciting. You know, it, it was just a, a magical experience hopping on a plane, uh, you know, looking out the window, um, even just getting to the airport and checking in. It, it felt magical. I feel like now I do, um, I'm a little bit jaded. I do sort of just traipse up to the airport and sort of say, look, I'm flying somewhere today. I'm barely sure of where it is. Let, let's go. Um, but I think also, and this was a big one for me, um, I didn't get my license very quickly. I was one of those young people. I got my learners Bad. at 18. I'm, I'm shocking, right? <laughs> no, you're based in Wellington, you're sweet. Well, but then, that was my thinking, right? I thought, I'll move to Wellington, won't have to worry about it. So I had my learners just so I had a piece of plastic and that was it. Uh, and then, you know, getting told, well, you're going to f- be flying around the regions a bit more. I was like, yeah, cool, you I can drive. do that. Um, but there's only so many airports in the country. Um, f- funnily enough, trying to get to Hamilton, for example, Hamilton Airport's not even within the Hamilton city boundaries. So, you know, to try to get from Hamilton Airport to Hamilton itself is a bit of a drive. Now, if you don't have a car like I didn't, well, that's pretty difficult. So um, I, I think it has been something where it's given me a much greater appreciation, not only for the country, but how important it is to stay connected. Mm. Um, but but again, getting there on the ground, hugely important. And I think uh, gives you those, those connections and networks that in New Zealand we really, really uh, uh, focus on and, and are critical to success. Again, um, we're not looking in New Zealand for trying to sort of have the, the most uh, technically uh, efficient answer. A lot of the time we focus much more on the personalities and local communities and trying to understand those networks and that's what I've found really, really useful and I'm sure you have too, right? If something needs to happen and you have the right sort of networks, you can pick up the phone and very quickly get stuff going not necessarily because you are the big man or the position of power but because you know the right people. Relationships. Absolutely critical yeah yeah um i'm really keen to go back to housing and as as a young person myself who wants to get into the housing market eventually don't know when that will be are the records of growth at the moment are they sustainable when is it going to slow down are we going to see a crash or will it just steady are they sustainable absolutely not i mean they're, they're, they're batshit they're completely Bonkers. off the charts um you know they, they are absolutely insane uh, Numbers now, you're talking an average of a million bucks. Um, and, and that's the thing I think that concerns me, right, is that like that there's a lot of money tied up there. Um, and if you asked a person on the street how much do you think a health should be, house should be worth, they'd be saying a far, far lower number. But we're all willing to pay that money because we know that if you don't, the next bloke next to you will. Um, and I think, you know, will it come back? I, I think it probably has to, but I, I do sort of struggle to see it automatically crashing. I say that because, look, the largest fall that we've had in living memory for house prices was I think 10.2% during the GFC. Now if you did that today, you'd take house prices back to February this year. Uh, you know, you, you do very, very, very little. House prices are up 30% over the last you know 12 months or so. So you're making a real shallow inroads. The challenge I think is that to get this magical affordability uh, level back, you would have to probably have a much more catastrophic hit to the economy. You'd have to have so many people lose their jobs that they couldn't repay their mortgage and therefore were looking to sell. And I don't I don't think that's sort of a better option. I don't think we fix the housing market by breaking the labour market. Um, but again, I think we've got to be realistic that if we let an issue build up over 40 years, it's going to take more than sort of 12 months to fix. But... 
the challenges are immense. If we wanted to get house price affordability back to the Goldilocks zone of sort of people talk internationally about uh, three times your, your income being the, the sort of average house price for affordability, that would either take, I think, about a 60% fall in house prices, um, which would just be huge. You know, you, you, and there's you, people's equity as well in their homes. You're cleaving off yep. more than half of all the cash you know, uh, and, and assets that a lot of people hold. Or you'd have to have, I think, a 130% increase in incomes. Now, I don't know about you, but the boss has never offered me more than double my salary all at once. Um, and, and I think, actually, we did some numbers the other day. To get housing affordability back uh, to where it was in around about the early 2000s here in New Zealand, we would have to have house prices not increase at all over the next 30 years, all the way through to 2050, and have uh, incomes continually in- increase at about 3% a year. I mean, that, that's pretty unfathomable that it's going to take another mm. 30 years to unwind. So it, it suggests that we've got a long and, and pretty difficult path ahead of us. And I think what, what's changed right in the last probably few years, we've got on a better path, but we're sort of, if this is a marathon, we've just passed the first kilometre. Like, we're not very far along. Um, and I think that the difficulty there for a lot of young people is probably for young people that are being born right at the moment, by the time they get going, they probably will be in an all right position. It's sort of our group, which are really going to be stuck in the middle. The outlook is fairly grim. And I think we've got to be realistic about that, not to be downbeat and sort of say, well, we're, we're completely stuffed, but we've got to be realistic. To buy a house at the moment is pretty damn difficult. We've got mm. to pull a lot of cash together. You've got to have the right family support you've got to have you know a lot of money behind you um it's it's a struggle are we looking at a future generation of renters I think we are, and I think also we're going to have this incredibly wide uh, and growing wealth gap, right? As the the baby boomers and similar start to eventually die, that's just a natural progress of life, to be clear, um, they're going to be handing down their houses to other people. But of course, for those people who are already doing it difficult and couldn't afford a house, as that continues, you're going to have more and more houses and wealth being accumulated by the haves and and therefore the have-nots are going to be stuck with renting uh, you know, and probably paying more for it over time. So I do worry that we've got this big uh, divide or much wider divide starting to come through for a lot of people. And young people, I think, at the moment are in this awful uh, position where there's nothing that they can do, there's nothing that we can do right, right at this moment to change that, but we are very much seeing the impacts of 30 to 40 years' worth of housing build-ups and people that just genuinely haven't cared enough to make the long-term positions. Mm. And I think, I mean, that's a challenge in economics, we sort of look at the short and the long term. You could grow GDP incredibly, uh, you know, if you sort of just put all the uh, limitations aside, you might destroy the environment and destroy people's lives in five years' time, but you could get a huge GDP hit now. I don't think we look long-term enough in this country. I think we look far too short-term. How do we sort of win the next day and, and screw over the next person rather than looking for, okay, what's the bigger opportunity going forward? How do we fix these longer-term issues? Mm. What can be done from a central government level to, I guess, slow down this crazy tidal wave which we're all surfing on at the moment? Well, I mean, we are seeing some of those moves already around trying to expand housing supply. Um, we do we need more tradies, which sort of goes back to the education conversation before, um, because we've got a lot of houses to build but not necessarily the right people to, to build them. Um, but I, I worry as well that we sort of get ourselves into the position where we try and sort of have a short-term fix now and actually let the build, problem you know build up over time. I'd hate for us, for example, to try and solve the housing crisis today uh, and then in 10 years' time be back in the exact same position. Yeah. So some of it is about allowing more land supply and people sort of go, oh, well, you've got to you know, allow for densification. And a lot of the time it's actually just saying, look, 
just going to be a little bit more lax on on where you can put stuff. We're pretty lax on a number of fronts on housing. Why are we sort of so so hardcore? You can only do certain things. Um, I think as well, the government can well be doing more to support young people into housing. Uh, you know, with low low deposit schemes and and similar. There's a careful balance there. You don't want to put young people in the position where they have such low deposit that if things do change, that they're immediately sort of in the worst financial position of their life. So there's there's a careful balancing act from government. But at the moment, I think we're seeing a lot of people who are not willing to sell their houses. Uh, you know, still a lot of building going on coming forward. That means that your supply is building, but sort of relatively slowly. The number of people out there in the market for a house are, are huge, and we really need to develop that supply a lot more. Mm. I think we might shift away from the housing discussion because that's getting me quite depressed to think about actually. Um, And we might move to the sort of COVID recovery. And I I don't know if that's going to be another sort of grim discussion with how things are heading, but really keen to hear your thoughts around the impact on the economy in regards to, you know, lockdowns, wage subsidy, et cetera. It seems like, you know, we've gone through this really tough time, um, we're still going through it, yet we're still seeing you know, record unemployment. You know, are, are there pros and cons to this, or are we just borrowing a lot of money? We are, and, and I think the challenge is that we're dragging sort of cash uh, from five years' time into the here and now. That means that in five years' time, there's not going to be as much to go around. We're going to have to work a lot smarter rather than a lot harder to sort of make up for it. So look, we are a little bit worried over the next five years that perhaps... Uh, after we get through sort of the COVID binge, things might sort of settle down at a slower pace. Um, but I think as well, I've sort of been quite excited sometimes with how New Zealand and the world actually has responded to COVID-19. Remembering again, the GFC, you know, the thing that I think everyone remembers was broadly speaking, a much worse hit uh, for a lot of countries because of how long and and down uh, the economy was. We saw unemployment in a much higher position, all of those challenges abound. And I think part of that was because this time around we took a way more proactive approach. And if that's a shift that our... that. Uh, us as a country, as businesses, as 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 you know, with our government can take going forward. I think there's some really uh, interesting opportunities there. I say that because after the GFC, we had this big uh, focus on well, we'll we'll allow people to have benefits. You know, we'll, we'll when people lose a job, we'll give them uh, job seeker support. We'll we'll help them through. Safety net, yeah. It was safety net, but only after they'd been you know smashed by by the pandemic. It's only after they lost their job. This time around, we said well. Maybe what happens if they don't lose their job? What happens if we let them keep them on for a little bit longer? Um, And that's what really surprised us. It worked really well. I remember reading the surveys of businesses who had the wage subsidy last year. They were asked, what are you going to do when it ends? And I think we were estimating at that point 120,000 New Zealanders might lose their jobs at the end of the wage subsidy. Um, In fact, they didn't because what that wage subsidy did is it said to employees, you don't have to make any knee-jerk reaction, wait it out for a few weeks. When things start to come back, as they invariably will because people still want you know their goods and services um you sort of just need to bridge that that fall um, and a literal bridge if you will between point a and point b it worked but it's only because we were much more proactive than reactive i think that's a lesson we can learn going forward how do we sort of again get ahead of issues rather than waiting until the issues have already started to hit us um climate change we're a little bit behind on housing we're certainly quite a, a way behind on but you look at some of the other rising challenges that um New Zealand has, you know, we, we, we talk about productivity, we talk about these skill shortages, we talk about an ageing population. How do we move ahead of the curve rather than waiting for the curve to hit us up, up the bum sort of thing? Mm-hmm. It's having that sort of uh, 
been to the top of the hill approach rather than the ambulance waiting at the bottom of the cliff. It's also sort of having a few fences before you sort of, you know, yes. you, you hit that fence right at the edge of the cliff and, and nine times out of ten maybe the wires do break and you fall down. Whereas if you've hit five fences beforehand then it's so much harder to go over the edge of the cliff. So mm. I think, and that's also building resilience because people don't feel like there's always this looming potential that things go completely wrong. Uh, there's a feeling that if things go a little bit wrong you can get yourself back on track. Um, the world is, is moving incredibly fast and I think that's going to be a big challenge for the recovery but also New Zealand has positioned itself relatively well. We haven't uh, had the huge amount of death and destruction that we have seen in other parts of the world. I, I think you know um, we talk a lot about economics, I think we've got to be pretty clear that having a far lower death uh, number and death rate has, has got to be advantageous just because uh, look we're humans and we, we're Absolutely. not that cutthroat right? Absolutely, yeah no completely agree. Um Really keen to talk about your personal sort of experience, I think, and conscious you're not a financial literacy expert, but keen keen to hear from you, how do you manage your money? Probably not as well as I should. And, and look, I'm upfront about that because, well, it's not going to do me or anyone else anywhere to go to, to sort of say, oh, he knows what he's doing, you must be all sorted. Um, I think at the moment the greatest focus is trying to understand what I want my money to do for me, right? And and that's different from every person. Do they want uh, a new car? Do they want a house at some point soon? Do they want to go on holiday? Um, certainly as the world starts to reopen, I think a number of particularly young Kiwis still going to want to look at that um, opportunity. But also, you know, what are you doing with, with the other bits of your time? I remember I, I felt a little bit stupid, to be honest, um, in the younger stages of life. I didn't. My first job was working for Infometrics uh, halfway through my uh, first year at uni. I didn't have, you know, this, uh, the supermarket job mm. or, or working at a cafe or, or in retail or similar. Um, I was doing a lot of community work, though, uh, you know, with the youth council, youth advisory group up in Whangarei and similar. Um, we tried to help set up a free youth health clinic and similar. That, to me, was much more important. That was the way I wanted to use my time. So I, I feel like people have, you know, the first uh, thing I always say to people if they do, ask those things well I tell them it's not sort of it's general advice but it is what are, what are your motivations here because it is wildly different for everyone um, and understanding also the position they they might be in where they're looking to go next is is huge so for me you know I'm trying to, to earn earn money absolutely like everyone else probably maybe want to buy a house someday it's probably not for me as critical right the second mm-hmm. as for a lot of people because I'm, I'm sort of at a different stage in life mm-hmm. um, but I think it, it is very much what's the motivation for a lot of people has got to be key mm, absolutely um so yeah, spoke about how do you manage your savings, and we'll we'll, we'll end shortly with a bit of a quote and some sort of quick fire questions. But also keen to hear from you, how do you manage your work life balance? I'm sure you know you're uh, you kind of take me as a guy that probably works some crazy hours. But do you do you have a line in the sand around you know this is my time for personal recreation? Or, you know, this is the time where I'm working and I'm just completely focused on it. I think uh, anyone that knows me somewhat well would probably tell you that, no, I don't have a line. Um, I, I'm working on it. And and I think as well, it's the sort of thing I'm always very keen to uh, use my time as effectively as possible. That's a personal decision in terms of what I find to be effective. Um, but my focus has always been, I, I want to leave this place, this world, better off than I found it. Um, and so that's sort of what I do with my time. Um, the focus there, you know, doing a lot of work, but also trying to sort of, uh, you know, provide wider support so you know as a justice of the peace for example I found it a bit difficult when we were uh, when I was trying to find a JP up in Whangarei 
I, I was a normal sort of lazy young person. I, I wanted to get stuff done like right now and I hadn't thought about it or it had delayed it for five weeks. All of a sudden, crikey, it needs to happen. Um, so I thought maybe I can provide that service. At the moment, with a lot of parts of Auckland and the Waikato uh, lockdown, I'm getting a lot of calls to online JP services. Mm. You know, I know how to use Zoom and, and someone that can get that done pretty quickly. So I, I guess... Um, do I have a good work-life balance? Probably not, to be honest. Um, does that concern me? Not particularly, because my focus is, is much more using my personal time, if you will, um, to do these sort of things, you know, to be acting as a JP, to be volunteering out in Wellington uh, with Take 10 during Friday and Saturday evenings mm, every now and then. I see that. That's, all, um, that's great. Oh, it, it's, it's incredible fun. But again, it, 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 in my mind, it's worthwhile, yeah. you know. Um, and I look at, you know, the JP stuff and, you know, you're helping people um, try to uh, pull their money together for a house or because they're in hardship, they're needing to get some sort of travel documents sorted. Um, they've got some educational milestones they're trying to hit uh, for Take 10, trying to make sure people have a good night drinking um, you know, water drinking water but also you know can charge your phone and get home mm. um you know they need a bit of a chat something's happened um you know there's there's a friendly face there um willing to to have a yarn i i think that all of that's sort of quite critically important mm. but also um you know when people again want to be sort of connected to the right people if, if i'm able to make those introductions and, and help support a better outcome that's hugely important for me mm. um but again it, it comes down to horses for courses i mean I, I certainly wouldn't recommend at all a lot of what i do to other people because because I know a lot of other people have much greater um, different focuses. You know, they've got a partner that they want to spend a lot more time with. Um, you know, they're, they're mad keen on sports or similar. Um, I think everyone's got different bits and pieces of that. I'll probably be up uh, early tomorrow morning watching the rugby, for example, because it's something I find, uh, you know, good good fun to watch. I'm certainly not a rugby player myself. Um, I, I think everyone's got those sort of little personal uh, things that they focus on. But what has also come through quite clearly in my life is that there isn't one pathway. And I think we've got to be really clear about that. Um, I often sort of, you know, people look up to different people and they're, they're, uh, you know, everyone's got a role model in their lives. It's important, I think, to take a little bit of uh, insight out of your role models, but also carve out your own path because yes. there's only one life that you're living and it's yours. Yes. Have you had any pretty influential role models for you along your way in your, in your early career? I, I, I think so, but I, I, I don't know if I'd be able able to sort of uh, pinpoint all of them because I think it was more that I'd, I'd pick up a little bit from everyone and I'd sort of either figure out that yes that's something I like and, and, and want to aspire to or actually that's something I don't think is, is in my sort of lane, my vibe um, important for that person but not as much um, I think a key focus for me, I mean mum and dad have, and, and, and my sister have always been a pretty uh, solid grounding rock that's that's always been important um, but also I, I guess having the right network of friends um, and knowing that they're not just going to be yes people. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you want yes people, they're easy enough to find in life, but it's the people who will give you the nitty-gritty yeah, uh, the hard answers, stuff. the hard stuff that you don't want to hear but really need to hear that's important. Yeah, totally. Um, cool. We might move to some quick questions. Fun. Brad Olsen, what is the meaning of life? <sighs> to leave the place better off than you found it. Love it. What does legacy mean to you? Uh, I think ha people respecting what you did uh, not not sort of who what who you uh, who you became per se, but the the sort of the the life that you led and, and and what you left behind. If you could change one thing in New Zealand, what would this be? Uh, people's perception of particularly young people, but also themselves. These are really hard. <laughs> well, do you think they were going to be easy quick well, fire I, questions? I thought they might be like you know pizza or or, or pasta sort of things, but yeah. <laughs> these are, these are the real details. Yeah, yeah, no, we're going well. We've had about you know forty five minutes easing into the big questions <laughs> at the end. So this is what the whole podcast is for. I will chuck in an easy one for you. 
pineapple on pizza, no, yes or no? No, absolutely not. You can be my friend. Um, if the audience could learn one thing today about the importance of economics, what would this be? That there are limited choices in life, that resources, their own time and money are scarce. Um, you've got to figure out what you want for yourself and then do everything you can to get there. Beautiful. What do you believe is the main thing that is holding back young people in New Zealand? Not being given a chance. I mean, young people have got a huge amount of, of energy. They know what they want. They've got a lot of uh, opportunity uh, that they want to be able to take on, but there's this big barrier that people are not taking them seriously enough. It shouldn't be that once you're 30, life becomes unlocked, but before then it doesn't. Um, if you've got the the sort of the focus, the wither all to, to go forward, then you should absolutely get a crack. That's beautiful. Before we wrap up with the quotes, Brad, where can people stay in touch with you um, and keep up to date with your mahi? Uh, generally on all the social medias, um, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, I think still exists in my life. Um, emails as well are, are pretty good, but also very keen to actually do stuff in person. Yeah, if you want a coffee, um, I'll add you to the long list of people I haven't caught up with during COVID times, um, but flick me, a, drop me a line and, and we'll get in touch. Beautiful. Uh, cool. We'll end with, end with this quote. Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character because it becomes your destiny. Boom, we'll end on that. Love Thank it. you, Brad. <laughs>